This episode of Talk Hockey Radio podcast has been sponsored by Kuka Hockey. You can find them on the web at www.kukahockey, that's one word, dot com. to the relaunch of Talk Hockey Radio. We have started this podcast as a legacy to Peter Savage, who founded Talk Hockey Radio in the early 2000s, and because, quite frankly, it's a brilliant name for a hockey podcast. We hope we do it justice and continue his legacy of great informative podcasting. Thank you for listening to us, and welcome to episode one. Okay, so we hope to cover a wide variety of stuff from our, uh, our fantastic sport. And here to help me today, we've got our co-host, Fraser. Hi, Fraser. Hi, Duff. How are you doing? You okay? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. This is our first podcast. I'm quite excited about it. What about yourself? Nervous tension, excitement. It's, we've been talking about it for a while, so I'm glad we're finally getting around to doing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm quite nervous and excited at the same time. I'm hoping that people do like uh, the podcast. As I said before, I don't know whether you heard the intro, this is dedicated always a legacy to Peter Savage, who was basically um, a hockey journalist, a photographer, a podcaster. I think when he first started the podcast, there wasn't much buzz about podcasting. Uh, And that's basically, I think that's why he didn't call it Talk Hockey Podcast. He called it the Talk Hockey Radio. Um, And we thought we'd keep it as the uh, Talk Hockey Radio rather than calling it Talk Hockey Podcast. But yeah, let's go get on with the show. So, Fraser, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do. Well, you can tell us as much or a little bit about what you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I've been playing hockey since I was six years old. I've had more than two decades in the sport. I've grown up a, sort of with it as the internet's kind of flourished as well. My dad introduced me to hockey at six years old. At 12 year old, the internet was all over the place. And so I was constantly on YouTube and places like that, searching out hockey videos of people doing drag flicks, people doing skills. Um, And so I came across players like Jamie Dwyer, Taka Takama, Ashley Jackson, watching lots of highlights. Um, And it's something I've never really grown out of. I've kind of taken that and moved it into kind of one central hub, which I operate, which is Boss F Hockey. I've been doing that for about two and a half years now. Uh, my main focus is Instagram because I think it's a, a better platform for videos and image content um, rather than text. Uh, I try to jump onto Twitter and Facebook every now and again and pop a few things up. And I've kind of positioned myself very luckily in that I'm the main reviewer for the hockey family. So interacting with brands, getting sticks, trying them out, playing with them for a few weeks, writing up reviews. Uh, I've done shoe reviews i've got a few more reviews coming out soon uh i've a one club man it's been playing at the same club since i started um i played university hockey at sheffield hallam and was lucky enough to meet some wonderful players who have gone on and done all right for themselves like phil roper uh that's kind of a brief summary of me in hockey 
Oh, okay. So you, do you do a lot of coaching as well? Uh, I do, yes. So I've, I've been uh, the under-16 boys coach at my club for the past two years. I've been volunteering for th- the past three years uh, after having to take a few years off because of work commitments where I was having to sort of give up every Sunday so that I could have every Saturday off. So I, I wasn't able to get down as much as I wanted to. Um, prior to that, I did do some coaching for South Yorkshire as well, which is the area I'm from. And I coached quite a few players coming through uh, who are now competing in age groups and hoping to, to reach the England level. Oh, brilliant. That's good. That's really good. Well, that's quite a, quite a feather in your cap then if they do get on to uh, <laughs> basically represent England, Scotland or whatever, whichever yeah. country they they want to uh, you know, represent and stuff. Well, that's quite impressive, actually. I don't know what to say. To that. I think my, my, <laughs> my bio is going to be really awful here. <laughs> well, you know, seeing though you've actually told us about yourself, I might as well sort of like say a bit about myself. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've basically just been doing um, hockey since I was around about 19. So I started a little bit later than most people. I started at college, got into it really uh by chance, really, to be fair, um, there was a guy that I knew at uh, college who uh, was setting up a college team because we didn't have one, and he was looking for players. And I'd played hockey in school, so I thought, yeah, okay, how 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 hard is it going to be? Uh, we used to play on red grass and 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 shale pitches. It was awful, <laughs> uh, a lot of injuries, but I, that didn't deter me. Uh, I loved the game. Uh, it's got even quicker. Schools having uh, astroturfs and things like that. And the rule changes is, is, is sort of like uh, made it grow a lot more, you know, around the world. I'm also a hockey maker, which is basically England Hockey's uh, volunteering um, brand. And I also am a event assistant, which basically means that I just help out and ha- have uh, other responsibilities when like international events happen in, in the UK. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be doing this for now 11 years. And being a uh, team liaison officer, uh, which basically means I look after international teams uh, in the last few years. It's been the England squads, either the men or the women. But in the past, I've looked after or was a TLO for Spain, Argentina. Uh, my first ever gig as a team liaison officer was in 2007, where I uh, was the liaison officer for the Ukraine women's team. Uh, which was a bit of a challenge because uh, about two or three of them spoke English and that was about it. <laughs> uh, so that was a bit of a challenge. But we got there. Uh, they did all right. And here I am starting with uh, the hockey family in 2012 and then launching this or relaunching this, uh, should I say, in the legacy of uh, Peter Savage. How you get in is not important. It's how much you commit to it. And as you say, jumping in and being a, a hockey maker is an opportunity I've not really been able to, to put myself forward for. I did look at it for the Women's World Cup, but unfortunately it was around the time I was changing jobs and I just I couldn't get that amount of holiday all in one go. But maybe in the years to come, I'll yeah. put myself forward again. Pro League, weekends, just get it done. <laughs> I'm always encouraging people to actually become hockey volunteers because I think it's really good if you if you love the sport and you want to give something back then I think it's a great way of giving something back to the sport other than, you know, going out there and coaching and, think, and things like that and, you know, give, giving up your time to do junior coaching or, or even adult coaching. It's something I think you'll, you'll remember forever. I mean, like I, I'm 
I remember the you know the Ukraine team like 11 years ago when I first started lots of memories from that and I still remember the little things that happened that made me laugh and made me even more passionate about volunteering if I didn't like it I think I would have not have done it after that <laughs> but it was it was quite good I thought with the introductions out of the way you did a, a an interview um for Tom Cocky Radio uh, which was weird uh, the the very famous and I think everyone knows who this person is if I actually mention his name uh, Jamie Dwyer it was it looks like it was a quite an in-depth interview um what sort of things did you without giving too much away obviously we're going to uh, play the interview in a short while what uh, did you kind of like talk about and you know give us a bit of an insight before we actually listen to the uh, the actual interview so in the interview, what I really wanted to, to talk about was everything, but that would have been four or five days of me just asking him constant questions. <laughs> now, he's a very busy man. He was kind enough to donate some time for the interview. Now, we got into talking about how he got started, how his journey took him from starting off at his local club right the way through to playing at the Olympics and winning a gold medal, to travelling Europe, playing for different clubs. Uh, and then we moved... Away from that, and we were talking about his hockey brand and the decision-making around that. And then moving forward into the future of hockey in general. So we, were, we did briefly touch on the Pro League, and we talked about another competition that Jamie's quite a big fan of. Um, I do want to put some apologies out there before you listen to it. I'm not a professional interviewer. There are a couple of trailing questions where it kind of takes me 30 seconds to ask a 10-second question. But Jamie was, was just so nice and didn't interrupt or anything. He waited for me to get through all the questions and then he answered in just a, a nice way i've spoken to him at a couple of events he is a really nice guy so if he if he is coming to an event near you if he's co- going to come across to any of the pro league events or if he's going to be at the euro hockey finals and you're going to be there and you see him go over and say hello he is such a nice guy yeah definitely uh, I'm, I, can, I can just totally agree with you on that one i've met jamie uh, quite a few times because he's been over with, with his brand, um, JDH, and also before he actually launched his brand, he was coming over to watch and even with, with the, the Kookaburras uh, on occasion when they came here and played some international games. And like you said, he's a very nice guy, very approachable. He even gave me a signed Jamie Dwyer hockey ball. Can you imagine wow. that? That was my first ever card, like meeting with him. Uh, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> We had a really good chat, and he's like, uh, "Tap, hey, look, just let me do this for you." And he just sort of like signed off on this, uh, you know, hockey ball, which I've still got. And this is like, oh, uh, must be six, seven years uh, uh, into this now. And it's one of my private possessions, so you never know. If you go over there and chat to him, he might give you a freebie signed hockey ball. You never know. Yeah. Well, I have uh, a poster that I made, and I showed it to him at the. Uh, World League semi-finals in London about 18 months ago and I showed it him and I said look I've made this poster I want to put it into one of the, the subscription boxes is that okay and he looked at it and went that's awesome I have no problem with you putting that in and I now have in my possession one of those posters that I made signed by Jamie Dwyer <laughs> I did have another one but that went into one of my mystery boxes that got sent out not too long ago. Oh, wow. Well, that's brilliant. So there is another one of those out in the wild, and there is only two on the planet. Wow, excellent. Amazing. <laughs> okay, right. You, you've trumped me. You know, anyone can sign a ball, but can anyone sort of like sign a limited edition poster that you've made up anyway? That's, uh, okay. 
Right. So the, the, the clickbait question that I did ask him, which is in this interview, is what does Jamie Dwyer look for when he's looking at sponsorship applications? Oh, really? Yeah, and that basically means that this is going to be a really good interview to actually look, listen out for because you might get a chance to figure out what he's looking for in a sponsorship application. You That's might. it. And, and to be fair, if you basically listen to the podcast, listen to the interview, and just send up the application with what he's looking for, really. So here it is, the Jimmy Dwyer interview. Hello and welcome. I'm joined by five-time World Player of the Year, Jamie Dwyer. So let's start there, Jamie. It must be nice to be the player who has won that award the most. Yeah, it is a nice feeling, that's for sure. I guess I didn't really think about it until I was retired from hockey, but now I'm retired. And it's been a couple of years since I played international hockey, and um, yeah, to win the, that prize five times is pretty awesome, that's for sure. Um, I must admit, though, I was... I was in a very good team and we had a lot of team success, which helped, helped me win that award. So uh, it wasn't just me, it's also for my teammates who were with me for those years that I won. Let's take it right back to the start. So when you were very young, how did you get into hockey? I got into hockey because of my mum and dad. So I started hockey uh, from a very young age, but I always had a hockey stick in my hand. Um, from up to the day I was born, pretty much. So I got into it. Uh, I think I started playing when I was about three or four. And in a small town in Rockhampton, in Queensland, which is uh, about 50,000 people that live there. And, yeah, my mum and dad play. My aunties and uncles were there, cousins, everyone's real family. Um, family Sunday in the winter in Rockhampton, which isn't really winter. It's still like 25, 26 degrees uh, in Rockhampton during winter. And then that went through March through to September, and then um, from September through to, to March, it was cricket season. So it was pretty easy uh, growing up in a small town and very, very family-orientated I was, and um, I loved the sport. So I just played it, and I was never the best. You know, I was never the fastest, the biggest, the strongest. I was never the best in my state, but... Uh, I had a real passion for it, and I was, and I wanted to see how good I could get, and I thrived off that competitiveness. Okay, so you, you got started through your parents. So when you were coming up through the youth system, at what point did it become realistic for you to aim for national team position? Was uh, it? Well, for me, I never made the Australian Under Eighteen team or the Australian Under Twenty One team. Um, because I was always in that odd year where the World Junior World Cup, I was 22, so when I was 17, 18, I missed out on the Junior World Cup team, and so it was. I took the hard road, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, it was when I was 15, 16. I had to make a decision between cricket on or hockey, and I was very good at cricket. Um, I don't know how far I would have went in cricket, but I was I was pretty good at it, and a lot of my family thought I was better at cricket than what I was at hockey. But I just loved the sport of hockey. I liked everything about it, and I really wanted to go to the Olympic Games. And that was when I was growing up watching the 92, 88 Olympics and the 96 Olympics. Um, it just made me want to go there and want to participate in what I think is the biggest sporting event in the world. And 
So that was one factor, and also, yeah, I just love the sport. I loved hockey a lot more than what I love cricket. I found cricket a bit boring, uh, where hockey was very, you know, you could challenge yourself physically um, and travel all places around the world, which I, which attracted me to the sport. So at about 15 years old, you had to make the, the hard choice of which sport you wanted to pursue, and the thing that pulled you towards hockey was the Olympics. So was there anyone growing up watching the Olympics who really inspired you as a player? Oh, yeah, there were. Uh, well, when I was growing up, when I was 13, I watched the 92 Olympics, and that's when Australia came second and Germany beat them. And the 94 World Cup was in Sydney when Pakistan won, and Shabazz was absolutely on fire. So there's a lot of players, I guess. Um, you know, people like Stephen Bain and Florian Bovelander from Holland, and then Australian guys like Jay Stacey, Stephen Davies, David Wansborough, uh, who, you know, were legends. Well, I thought they were legends. I had their posters on my wall. Um, now they're just mates of mine, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then, yeah, Shabazz. I think Shabazz, watching Shabazz in the 94 World Cup, when I looked at him play that tournament, that was unbelievable. And... I thought, well, it would be pretty awesome if I could go to a tournament like that and play like Shabazz did during that tournament on one leg in the final when he had a torn hamstring. So those all those players, and then once I got older, people like Turn to Neuer, um, there's a couple of Germans there, which I really admired, Bjorn Emily, who I thought was one of the best players I've ever played against, if not the best player I've ever played against. So, yeah, there's a lot of different... I don't know, I just liked... I liked watching good hockey and people like Shabazz and Turn just attracted me to the game and I wanted to be like them and I learnt from them. I watched them and watched them and watched them and watched all these different players and went out in the backyard and just practiced and practiced until I could do what they did. And then I'd go watch another game and see what they did and then go practice again. So, yeah, I just, I, I had a real passion for it from a very young age and yeah, my competitiveness has been there from when I was young. I hated I hate losing, uh, and I really enjoy winning. And I guess that I guess that feeling of when I was performing really well, when I trained hard for it, and then got the reward was very satisfying to me. And that's why I strive for greatness. I guess. And how does it feel knowing that? There are people who are coming up and starting to play international games now who looked at you in that same light, watching you play. I mean, nowadays, we're seeing highlight videos of you playing international hockey, hockey India League, playing in the Dutch leagues on YouTube and places like that. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, really. Um, I get it now. I get why... Um people watch me and want to play like that and like I said I didn't really think about that <clears throat> when I was playing international hockey or when I was still striving to be better every single day I just wanted to do my thing and just thought that I was another player in the Australian team and we're all equal and that's I guess how we've been treated um, in the Australian team uh, I've never had my name on a pedestal or anything like that here in Australia and it's a bit un-Australian to, to do that as well. So 
Uh, I get it now after traveling the world and seeing, you know, some Indian guy have a tattoo of my face on his, uh, uh, a picture of me on his arm. Um, I was in America and someone named their kid Dwyer, their first name, they called the kid Dwyer, um, and then his surname after me. So, like, stuff like that really, oh, wow, you know, it's, um, it's, I've had a pretty big influence on a, a lot of people around the world and hopefully that's a good influence and um yeah I, I mean now with the social media and with youtube and everything you can you can log in and just look at your best player the best players in the world and um hopefully yeah people have learned some skills from from me and and become better hockey players or started the game because of me and that makes me very proud Yeah, well, I was, I think, one of the first people, field players, to wear number one. The reason, two reasons behind it. One was because in Rockhampton, when I was younger, there was an Australian player, uh, female, who was the goalkeeper at the Olympics, and she had number one, and she gave me a couple of, of her shirts. And so I used to wear it all the time. Uh, her Australian shirt, number one on the back, and we used to run around um, day and night. Used to go and sleep in it. Uh, so, so my mum and dad said, "Take that shirt off. We need to, we need to wash it." So my first Australian shirt I ever put on was number one. And then when I finally got selected in the team, which when I was 22 years of age, I was a late bloomer, but. Um, there was a bunch of us after the team got selected and the manager rung up my mate and said, hey, uh, what number do you want to be? And he had the option between number one, number six, number 13, and then number 20 in the twenty high 20s. He chose number six and then he passed the phone on to me and so I'd choose between number one or 13 because uh, I didn't want anything in the 20s. And Jay Stacey was number 13 for Australia and he was, you know, a bit of a legend. I, I just didn't feel right to take his number because I'm a different player to him and even though he was one of my heroes. Um, so I chose number one and everyone thought I was weird, <laughs> I guess, and a little bit strange. And even when I played international tournaments, I remember uh, some of the Dutch guys come up to me and the Germans go, why, why are you wear number one? That's the goalkeeper's number. And I said, oh, yeah. I'm the shortest in the team, so I have to win number one. <laughs> I have to make something up like that because uh, I was scared of them. But, um, yeah, so that's how I got number one. And since then, uh, everywhere I went, everyone wanted to give me number one, whether it was in India or Bloomingdale or uh, when I went to Spain. So I played club hockey here. But uh, it's good. Uh, when I watch international hockey, there's a lot more number ones out there. And I think, oh, that's cool. You know, it's, uh, never saw that back in 2001, 2002 when I started but 16 years later, 17 years later, there's a lot more number ones, which uh, I like. How did it feel the the first time you walked out onto the pitch in your Australian number one shirt? I was in Melbourne 
Um, I received the shirt from David Lonsborough, who's a good friend of mine now, but also was a role model who I said I watched the 92 Olympics and tried to model a bit of my game off. He presented me the shirt the night before, and I didn't wear it. I put it on my bed, and I just left it there and just said, okay, when you put this on, you're going to go out there tomorrow and you're going to play against, against New Zealand and just have some fun. And I started on the bench, uh, and one of my mates came off because he had a he got hit and was bleeding, so I had to come off for the blood drill. I ran onto the field and I was, yeah, obviously excited and nervous and a lot of, uh, I was proud as well. I got to, you know, play my first game for Australia. My mum and dad were in the grandstand watching. My two younger sisters were there, was there as well, which was special to me. And one of my first touches was inside the circle. I received a very good uh, pass from Bevan George. And there was no one around me. Uh, all I had to do was just, hit it in the goal, and it would have been a goal. And I uh, slipped a little bit and completely missed the ball. <laughs> so my first shot in international hockey was an air swing, and I never thought I'd play for Australia again after that. But uh, luckily I played pretty well that game after that first air swing goal shot of mine, and then got to play plenty more times for Australia. So, But, yeah, my first game was pretty, aw- pretty awesome. I just – it was great. And I remember after the first game – um, I loved it so much. I just said to myself, just do this as much, many times as you possibly can because when you do retire, uh, the thing you miss the most, I guess, is that nervous energy and competing against some of the best players in the world, like getting your uniform on, getting ready, going out there for battle and just, um, yeah, seeing how good you are. That's one of the things you miss, that's for sure. And that was one of my... When I, Played my first game. That were, the, that were the feelings that I had, and yeah, that didn't change for the other 364 games I played. And you talked about how you sort of came up the hard way. You didn't play in the under 18s or under 21s because you fell on the the awkward year. So how did it then feel when you got nominated for World Young Player of the Year? Was it a shock? I wasn't a shock. Um... I guess when I say I did it the hard way is because also I moved to Perth from the eastern states, so Rockhampton's on the northeast of Australia, and you have to move to a bigger city, so I moved to Brisbane to play in a better hockey competition. Then from there, you move over the other side of Australia, which is five and a half hours flight away, and you're in Perth, and that's where the training environment is, and I was here for three years before I got my first game for Australia. So Terry Walsh used to be the coach and he never selected me when other guys my age were getting goes. Uh, and I thought, why, why aren't I getting a go? And then Barry Dancer came as, on as the new coach and selected me and I knew I was ready. I was ready to play international hockey and I really was uh, hungry for it. So I guess missing out on Junior World Cups and uh, Sydney Olympics, uh, made me hungrier and made me feel like I deserved it and I wanted to prove people wrong that I was good enough. So it's when to go, my first year in 2001 was a pretty solid year and then 2002 we had the World Cup, the Commonwealth Games, Champions Trophy and I think I played like 30, I think I played 33 games that year and I scored 25 goals or 24 goals. So it was a really solid year for me and I felt like I was really improving. Uh, as a hockey player and I was not just 
on the edge of making the Australian team, I was guaranteed that if I was fit and playing in, in good form, I knew I was going to be in the Australian team, and that's the position I wanted to be in, that's for sure. So that year was a very good year for me, and uh, to win that Junior Player of the Year just gave me confidence into the next few years. Obviously, from there, you've gone on and you've won World Pro of the Year multiple times. So the first time that you were nominated, how did you feel? Did you feel like you deserved it? Did you feel like it was something that you were just happy to be nominated with the players that were also up? Or was it something you thought, yeah, I definitely deserve this? Tony was also nominated. nominated. You think, well, he's probably going to win. But uh, that year I didn't play well because I was, I was injured the whole year pretty much. But then at the Olympic Games, everything, and I guess that's that's what you need to uh, perform at and I performed well at that so I came off a serious knee injury I was out of the game for 11 months and I didn't start playing hockey again until May 2004 which gave me a lead up for about two and a half three months to the Olympics and to be honest I was uh, probably more nervous about making the Olympic team because my form wasn't great and then I made the Olympic team I got the phone call from uh, Barry Dancer saying I was in the team which I was over the moon about and then I thought yeah I've got nothing to lose I'm just going to go to this Olympics um, we've never won an Olympic gold medal of uh, this is my dream I'll just go out there and just play hockey and uh, at the Olympics scoring a hat-trick in the first game and then two goals in the second game and hitting golden goal and the way I performed I thought um, yeah I took my game to a new level so when the nominations came out I thought yeah okay it's great. I'm in that, um, in with nominated with these players that are brilliant players. Uh, I thought probably maybe I'd have a chance just because of my performance at the Olympics. Um, uh, yeah, I was one of the best players at the Olympics, and that's what won me the uh, best player in the world for 2004. Um, what I was probably more proud of, I guess, was to be able to come back from having such a serious knee injury when doctors and physios. Can, um, all the specialists telling me I would never be as fast and never be as fit and to once again prove people wrong um, was very satisfying for me and to win the Olympic Games gold medal that was the highlight um, and yeah just to, to cap off a brilliant year to get nominated I think um, by over 50% of the votes I think was that year I got the phone call because everyone was in Pakistan it was when the Champions Trophy was in Pakistan the Australian team wasn't allowed to go so I wasn't allowed to be there and to get the phone call and at, while everyone was at the function and uh, said that I got more about 50% of the votes from my peers was, was mind-blowing. And, yeah, I, I was in Rockhampton at the time and my mum and dad and my sisters and relatives were all really happy, so we had a bit of a party and uh, it was a great time in my life, that's for sure. Now, you touched on it there, winning the Olympic gold scoring the golden goal did you have a moment when you got on top of the podium where you could take it all in or is it one of those words cannot describe experiences or were you just too high on adrenaline from the game i was yeah i was pretty high on adrenaline that's for sure i um i was over the moon that we won first gold medal ever and just to to go to the olympics and the way it all panned out for me and for the team, we worked really hard. Um, obviously, you need to work really hard to win an Olympic gold and, and to 
to win it against, you know, a coach who was coaching the Dutch team, who used to coach the Australian team, who never picked me, was also satisfying, I must admit. And just the whole, just, I think we deserved it in the end. Um, you have to go there, it doesn't matter what you deserve, but you have to earn it, and you, we, we earned it, and we got it in the end. And I was first because of my number one, and uh, for me it was very special to get that gold medal around my neck straight away and I uh, turned around to my parents and showed them, you know, the gold medal and sung the national anthem and before you know it, it's, it's over. But that whole game was, um, yeah, it was 12 years ago now, but it didn't feel like, it feels like it just happened uh, just recently and you still can't really believe it because when, like I said when, before, when I was growing up watching the Olympic Games, wanting to go to the Olympics and and for the Australian men's team never to win an Olympic gold medal and for me to hit the winning goal, uh, for us to have success, was, uh, yeah, a boyhood dream. It's something that I still pinch myself to this day that uh, if it really happened or not, you know, it was definitely uh, the best sporting best moment in my life and by a long way. And obviously from there you've gone on to win countless other tournaments for club and country. So you touched on it earlier, coming across and playing in Europe. Now, was that something that you always wanted to do or just an opportunity that sprung up while you were playing? What was the, the decision-making behind it? Yeah, it was an opportunity that I wanted to pursue. I always wanted to go to Holland to play, and there had been Australians there previously before me, um, like Jay Stacey, Troy Elder, Brent Livermore. And I remember speaking to Turner, Turner one best player in the world in 2003. He was in Sydney, and I was there. And I said, oh, mate, I want to come over to Holland. And he said, you've got to come to my club. And I said, okay, just put me in contact with whoever it is. And he put me in contact. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty easy decision, really. I, I said to the guys, yeah, I want to come to Holland and um, want to go to this club and play, play for Turns team, Blumenau. And it was easy. We got the contract done. And it was only a one-year deal. And after that, I... I wanted to stay because I loved it so much and not only did I love the hockey over there but it really improved my game I think as well like I was playing you know I had a really good coach Michelle Van Hovel who's now back in back Blumenau who's got a lot of international experiences as well and Turn was there and I learned a lot from Turn and that's one of my assets I think is watching players and learning from them and becoming a better player myself and so, yeah, to play over there was, yeah, it was really good. And I, I met my girlfriend and our wife and we've had three kids. And, yeah, so everything was sort of meant to be in the end. And uh, for me, playing in Holland and the club Bloemendale is very special to me. And you know, I ended up playing six years there. So that's how how much I loved it, that's for sure. And then other opportunities come up. Playing here in Spain was also a good experience. Playing four seasons, five seasons over in uh, the Hockey Indian League was great. And just those experiences which you, you sort of never really think about when you're growing up, it just, it's, uh, yeah, they're great to have just to see, to live in a different place, see the culture, learn a different hockey style and just to uh, have, have fun doing what you love doing. And I take it from your response, it's something you'd absolutely recommend to other top players if they can? Like even just, in, that's the beauty about our sport, you know, it's 50% female, 50% male, you can play it from three years of age to 
93 years of age. You can go all around the world, like girls can go to Argentina, to USA, and get um, uh, get go to a college over there. You can plan Europe, which is an awesome experience. Or if you're European, you can come to Australia or New Zealand. So that's the best thing about, I guess, our sport. But I definitely recommend it for not just elite athletes, but also for people who enjoy traveling or want to spend a gap year somewhere um, and check out a different culture and play some hockey. Obviously, recently you've been back across at Bloomingdale for one season. Now, was that something that was planned out well in advance, like a, a final farewell tour kind of thing, or was it something that you really wanted to do and the opportunity came up? Uh, I just stumbled across it, actually. I was at the European Championships in Amsterdam in 2017, so last year, and it was around, I think the tournament was in July, I'm not too sure, August even. I saw Michelle just walking past him. Hey, Michelle, how are you going? Yeah, good, good. And we got chatting, and he, he asked if there was any players that I could recommend to go to to Holland. And I said, oh, yeah, there's none really available from Australia because of the uh, Australian hockey commitments that they had. But I cheekily said, oh, I'm available. And he said, yeah, no worries. Uh, whenever you want to come across, you can come across. And now I didn't really think about it. And then I spoke to the... So the guy who arranges the contracts and everything said he's serious, and I said no, not really. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it we had a couple more conversations, and I spoke to my wife, and it was a quick decision. We said, okay, let's go over there. It was something that I was a little bit worried about because of the kids, because of the schooling, and etc. And we've got a house here in Australia, and um, we had to quickly pack up and move over the other side of the world. Um, but we did it, and it was probably one of the best years of my life, to be honest, um, to go back there to play in the best competition in the world. And I personally felt I played played well. I didn't get injured, um, which at my age you're always a little bit worried about. And to win the European Hockey League was unbelievable. For my wife, it was great because she's Dutch, and to see her friends and family was really good for her. And for my kids... Especially uh, my two eldest boys, Julian and Taj, who are nine and seven. Uh, they got to play for Bloomingdale and they got to live in a different culture. But something they really enjoyed as well, which for me as a parent, uh, I was watching them grow up as little boys and, and they were loving it. So it was really good to see that. And my daughter, who's three, she also enjoyed it, even though she didn't like the cold too much. She, um, she had a great time as well. So overall... That year, uh, which finished in June this year, just uh, was amazing and something that I'll always remember. Probably more special this the season just gone than probably all the others. With your young family, as they're growing up, are you sort of transitioning now into coaching and managing junior teams, getting down at weekends at your club and coaching, as I call them, the minis, but... Um, let's say players of an age where they've not typed your name into YouTube yet. Yeah, that's the age I'm teaching. I'm um, teaching my kids' teams. And I coach them when I can. And this afternoon we've got uh, summer hockey starting. And yesterday we had cricket. So in Australia, because of the weather. Um, we can play different sports all year. And, uh, I coach hockey a lot, um, not like 
that much, but just uh, at my club and um, only just around the corner from my club here. So I'll try and stay involved as much as possible. I think next year I'll probably play second division or maybe third division, depending um, how I feel. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's good. It's a good culture. And like I said, that's the best thing about our sport is that our whole family can play and my wife plays and my daughter will start probably playing next year. So it's going to be in my family for the rest of my life. That, I think, is the magic of hockey. It is a family game. So we'll move away from you playing career now. You moved away from, at the time you were sponsored by Adidas and you started Jamie Dwyer Hockey. Obviously on the, the video, you've got a row of sticks just over your shoulder. What was the, the th- thought process between being a sponsored player and having your own brand? Yeah, uh, I just like the idea of it. I, I was always, I'm always interested in technology, whether it's in hockey sticks or golf clubs or tennis rackets. Or I, I was always interested in the technology behind the equipment and the sport. So I thought this starting my own brand um, fitted in well with with my personality, and um, it started off as a bit of a hobby. And I got a lot of help from a, from my business partners at the time. Um, who helped me out with the factories and logistics and taught me a little bit about the business. And just recently, or not just recently, but since then, I've, I've bought them out and I'm 100% owner. And I've been over to Pakistan to the factories and I've worked on different uh, designs and the different makeup of the sticks and the material goes, that goes into the sticks and where it goes, etc. to try and make the best hockey stick. And when I was playing, I had two simple things I wanted to, I guess, to, to do. One was enjoy it, and the other one was to, to be the best player I could possibly be. And I'm taking that same attitude into my business. So I want to enjoy what I'm doing, and it is good fun. Uh, it can be, it sometimes feels like work, because it is work, but it is a lot of fun. And I'm trying to make the best hockey sticks and equipment in the world, and definitely on the right track over the past couple of years. It's been going... Um, very fast and it's been expanding all around the world. You know, it's, it's nearly everywhere now. It's in Egypt, Japan, uh, China, Korea, South Africa, USA, Argentina, Chile, Australia, New Zealand, it's everywhere, all in Europe. So it's growing quite quickly. So it's becoming a bit of a bit bigger of a business than I originally planned, but it's been good fun and I'm, yeah, I'm loving it at the moment. It's, uh, it allows me to go to some hockey tournaments. It allows me to travel. Um, I can work my own hours from home or at my office. It's very flexible, so um, it's really good, and it's something I'm very passionate about. And obviously, the the brand is deeply ingrained in your career. Yes. When you you've named the different tiers of your range, you've picked important numbers to do with your career. Obviously, you've got the X1 at the bottom end and you've now got the X93 at the top. What was the decision-making process for, for picking which ones would become immortalised in a hockey stick? Uh, well, I wanted to relate it to me. Like, I want the brand to be more than me uh, in the future, that's for sure. But I wanted to have the history of the sticks to be about my career. And the 93 stands for... The carbon content is 95%, so it's the top of the range stick. 
my 93rd game for Australia was the Olympic medal match, which we won. So that's why it's called the X-93, um, because, yeah, of my 93rd game for Australia, and it relates to the carbon content. Um, the X-79 was the first stick that we came up with, and the 79, I was born in 1979, so 79 comes from that. And it's got 80% carbon, so it sort of matches up um, the number with the carbon content, which is uh, easy for retailers or for people ordering the stick to uh, affiliate those numbers together. The X60, which has 50% carbon, it is the 60th goal of my career was the golden goal in 2004, which won the Olympic Games. Um, so that is a very important goal to me. So we made the X60 and we put the carbon content at 50%. And the X1, my shirt number, um, I was always number one. And, yeah, it's got uh, 20% carbon. It's a little bit higher percentage carbon, but, um, yeah, it had to have an X1 in there because of my shirt number. And then we've got a junior stick as well. So, yeah, it's uh, those numbers aren't going to change. Um, and I think it it's easy. It tells the story a bit behind the brand. And it uh, sort of matches up with the carbon content as well in the stick, which is the carbon gives the stick extra strength. So the higher the carbon content, the, the stiffer the stick is, the harder you can hit. With the sticks, obviously you've just gone through a, a major change, so to speak, with the sticks that you make and that you've now dropped down to just the two bow profiles. So you've got the low bow and the concave now, whereas before you had, I believe, four. What was the, the thinking behind dropping those two other profiles? I just wanted to simplify it, really. Um, I wanted to simplify it for the retailers when they're buying the stock from me or from distributors around the world. And I want people to just to go up and just know it's either a Lobo or a Concave. Lobo is uh, one that I use, which I've uh, used for the last five or six years and really enjoy that shape. Um, um, but then you've got the concave, which is a, not a huge concave in the face, but a little one, um, which is better for pushing the ball, throwing aerials or drag flicking. Um, and the other, why I did that as well is because when I did have the four ranges, the standard bow, low bow, extra low bow, and the concave, um, the low bow and the concave, you know, 90% of the sticks sold were either those two. So then it was made an easy decision to drop the standard bar on the extra low bow. So uh, that was another re reason. So I just wanted to simplify it for everyone to make it look crisp and neat and um, make it easy for people buying, but also the retail retailers who are selling the sticks. With the, the sticks now, obviously it is more simplified. I know one of your players gets a, a custom wrap on his stick uh, to do with his Red Bull sponsorship. And you've just launched the uh, limited edition Netherlands stick. Is there anything else like that planned? Are you going to do uh, an Australian version that's going to be yellow and green or anything else like that in the works? Yeah, we've got something special for the for the sponsored actually. Um, but I'm not going to mention that just yet because they don't even know about it. So... Uh, something that's pretty cool, which, uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about. Gives them sort of exclusivity, I guess, as being an international athlete. And um, 
sticks are going to be a little bit just a fraction different, which um, is a subtle notice that you'll be able to see. Um, and yeah, we will do a limited edition another country. We're undecided yet which country it's going to be, whether it's going to be Australia, uh, USA, New Zealand, Argentina. Not sure yet, but we'll probably bring out another 250 uh, limited edition of a country next year as well. So um, not too sure which country yet. That's in discussion, but we will do it. And the colours, I'm not too sure yet. It'll be the colours of the country, obviously. Yeah. As I say, I, I have put this out on social media, and a big question that people want to ask is about sponsorship. So what do you look for when you are looking at sponsorship for athletes at the top level and lower down as they're coming up through age groups and things like that? Uh, you want to see what level they're at so and what influence they have with other um, peers. If they great on the 15 boy and, you know, he's, he's a coach from the under 13 team and they all look after him, uh, for example, that would be definitely worth it. Um, also, how they are on social media, um, that's plays a bit of a part. Social media is so powerful these days. Uh, most of all, have to be nice people. Um, and for us, that's one thing that we really look at. And there's different types of sponsorships. You know, if you you have little discount sponsorships uh, for up and coming, you know, younger players, and you have you get, the older you get, the better you get, the more influence you have the more of a discount you get until you get to international level level where hopefully those players like Sophie Gray, Sophie Gray, uh, Blake Govers, um, uh, Kelsey Smith from New Zealand, those players really, a lot of kids look up to them and want to buy a stick because of what they use. So there's different types of levels, but we look at sort of, yeah, the level of, the level of play, uh, how they are as a person, um, what they're like on social media, and also, um, yeah, I guess that's about it, really. <laughs> and who's your favourite sponsor, sponsored athlete at the minute? I can't, I can't say that. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a few. Uh, they're all good. They're all good. Right? Fair enough. Same so much as like sponsored for the rest of their lives and they've been promoting JDH very well lately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, there's one, but it's not a, it's a team. Uh, there's teams over in America which have their personalised sticks like UConn, UMAT, uh, Yale, sorry, and Cal and a couple of other uh, colleges over there that have their personalised sticks and they've been promoting the sticks great lately and they really look good at all. So that's something that we've done last year. Good. What do you think of the, the state of hockey at the minute? So at the minute it's kind of about to, to cross over what we're hoping is going to be a, a big change for the game and help publicise it in the Pro League. And that's caused some discussion, let's call it, online. So where do you land on the Pro League? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? What do you see coming out of it? Yeah, I've, I've had a look at the schedule and I actually like I like the idea behind it. I like how they've uh, got the home and away and 
you know, I'm excited to go watch games here in Australia, for example, when they come over. Um, and maybe I'm going to be in Argentina when Holland and Germany are there as well. So I'm, I'm excited to see these games. I'm unsure how it's going to work financially, um, but I'm sure the FIH is on top of that. I think it is getting busier for the players, uh, especially players who are getting paid from clubs, whether you're in Europe or or outside Europe. I think that it's getting it's getting quite busy now. I'd like to see it see it go the same way football or soccer has gone, where this is your the period for competition with your clubs and in your country, and here's two periods um, that you need to block out the international. Uh, I'd like to see that happen in the near future. But with the pro league, yeah, oh, I'm not too sure. It's a lot of travel, and it's going to be very expensive. Um, but, yeah, I, I sort of like the idea as well. So I'm unsure. I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes this summer in Australia and uh, leading into the summer over in Europe. I'm, I'm pretty curious to see how it goes. And, yeah, um, I'll maybe ask me in another six months. Or <laughs> you have been an advocate for the, the Super Sticks hockey tournament. I know you sent me the, the information about it and it looks very interesting. Do you want to give the, the pitch for the competition? Yeah, it's uh, it's a new competition that's coming into the uh, to the world, really. So there's going to be eight teams based all around the world, and you get to pick your team, similar to like the Hockey Indian League. And so, like for example, the Australian team might have a couple of um, Europeans in it or more, for example, and vice versa. Um, and it's going to be played not in club or international competition. The, the time is going to be quite small and it's going to be in a pretty big stadium where hopefully it's all on television and it's really exciting to watch. So it's similar to five-side um, hockey, which is playing at the Youth Olympics at the moment. Um, the rules are undecided. And it's a little bit undecided whether it's going to be uh, mixed gender as well. So both male and female can play on the field at the same time, which is something which is, hasn't happened before, which I think would be pretty good to see. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's in the process of um, being real. Uh, it started as a bit of a project probably six months ago when uh, I had first discussions about it, but it's, it's picking up pace, that's for sure, and uh, like team names and venues and uh, team captains and coaches, etc. all pretty much been sorted. So hopefully discussions with FIH are going on at the moment and we'll see what happens. Um, but I think it, I think it, you can see by cricket and by rugby that it is possible for a, a smaller game, or not smaller, I guess a less number game in our sport. I don't think that should be at the Olympics or I don't think it definitely should be World Cups or the, the major tournaments. But I think there is a spot for it in our sport. And you look at the 2020, it's been a huge success in the rugby sevens, like I said. So if it gets any anything like that, um, I think it would be a success for our game. And if there's money brought into it too, like in those sports, I think it could attract young kids to the sport. Um, so it's still early early days. I'm not too sure um, how far it's gone with the FIH. I'm not involved in that area. But I'm pretty excited about it, that's for sure, and I think it's um, 
yeah, I think it would be awesome hockey. And as you know, I'm, I'm the guy. I've always loved hockey and I've always wanted what's best for hockey. And something like this, I think, would be a great addition to our sport. Is it going to be sort of a, a one-match format or is it going to be sort of mini-tournaments? So two or three teams go across to, say, Sydney and play a few games over a couple of days and then there's nothing for a few weeks or is it going to be sort of one team will come across to play a game, then the Australian team come across to, say, Holland and play a game? Yeah, no, it's going to be more like the three mini-tournaments. So roughly around Christmas and New Year, you'll have, at, at this stage, nothing but at this stage, it looks like there's going to be a tournament around uh, just before Christmas, tournament after the New Year. Um, that's when everyone's off for holidays. And it could be one venue for four teams, another venue for another four teams. And then the finals will probably be in June, July, in Europe somewhere, maybe London. Uh, or now I'm not too sure, but somewhere in Europe with a, with a nice stadium and we'll play the finals where all the teams will be. Over probably three days at the moment, you're looking at a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So a similar, similar concept to what the Rugby Sevens have done. At the final weekend, any plans for uh, Team Jamie Dwyer versus Team Tendenoya? Legends game? Yeah, Some, that is Something exhibition like that? Yeah, we'll get Shabazz in there and Bovland yeah. and other guys, why not? Um, ah, that's possible, that's for sure. And to get Luciana Amar over, um, that would be a great idea. And, and why not? If, it, if you can make it happen and it's in a great location, I'm sure the players will want to come over and play some hockey. Right then, um, to finish up, I've got some quick fire questions. Against them. <laughs> <laughs> Quick five questions to finish up, as I say. So, who's your favourite teammate? Devin Jordan. And is there any one player who you always hated lining up against? Bjorn Emmerling from Germany. Who is your favourite international player at this present moment? Cranbush, uh, the younger one. If you could play any other sport... At international level, what sport would you play? Cricket or golf? Probably golf. Golf. And if you hadn't become a hockey player or a sportsman, what would you have liked to have done? Something in sport, like a journalist or a commentator or just a coach. Something in sport. Right. Thank you very much for your time. No worries at all. Thank you. Anything happening in the world of hockey at the moment? That we need to we, we can discuss i mean i i've got a few but i don't know whether you've been looking at other stuff i think one of the big announcements especially in europe is the the launch of the euro hockey league women's section oh which yeah. I, yeah people have been asking about for years and pushing for and i'm really glad that they finally announced it yeah but um it isn't the isn't the format that they've got 11 men's team and six women's teams. So do we know why they've just only picked six women's teams to go into this competition rather than having a, an outright 11 teams in each um, sort of like gender? I don't think they've given a full official statement as to why there is the less women's teams than men te men's teams. I think it is down to they're just trying it out, kind oh, of okay. pushing it in, and they're slowly going to filter it out to be the same sort of size. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I think they're going to be running it uh, uh, concurrently, aren't they, uh, anyway? Yes, I believe uh, they are. So it's not going to be like, you know, you're going to have to wait till the men's is finished, then the women's will start. 
you'll basically be doing it kind of like the same weekends or whatever. So that'd be quite interesting. I think there's a lot of good teams out there, club teams out there, I think, even on the women's side, they're getting stronger. Uh, they are, yeah. From everywhere, uh, you know, England, Netherlands, Germany, they are getting quite strong. And hopefully we'll see some great female EHL hockey action. Well, is it next year this can start? Yeah, so it's the 2019-2020 season where it starts. Uh, Well, I can't wait for that anyway. It's a long time coming and I think it's going to be exciting to watch, especially when you've got double the, well, near enough double the amount of hockey that you're going to be able to watch from the EHL. I heard another announcement as well, actually, only recently, um, which was about the Commonwealth Games at the Birmingham University, who have actually got the rights for I think, I want to say squash and netball as well, but I think it's just squash and hockey at the venue in 2022 for the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. But the capacity of the stadium is only going to be about 5,000. What's your thoughts on that? I'll tell you what my thoughts are in a minute. (laughs) I think that's too small. I, I get that hockey is, at the minute, kind of a hard sell, but you just have to look at what's gone on with the Women's World Cup and the Hockey Pro League at the minute. They've put both events up for a ballot, and both times the ballot's gone over. Mm. I mean, I think I saw something on social media saying that there was for one of the games there was over a hundred thousand applications. Yeah. So I just I feel like it's gonna just not be enough. There's gonna be people who are wanting to go who won't be able to. It's gonna be one ticket per application. You're gonna have people signing up with multiple accounts to try and get tickets. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But, I mean, 2022 is, is, what, three years away now? Three and a half years away now? Do you think it's going to grow a lot? And, and you, You've already said that 5,000 is probably not going to be uh, big enough and they probably might need to have it bigger. Who knows, they might actually change their mind and, and the stadium will be a little bit bigger. And, or, who knows, they might just keep it the same. Who uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But do you think it's going to grow? Absolutely. With... The television, right, I'm going to say product, people are going to get upset. <laughs> Hockey is a sport, the television coverage is a product. It's something that is sellable. Mm. But yeah. the product of the television coverage is getting better and better. We're getting pundits sat in a box doing breakdowns of the game at halftime and post-match analysis. We're getting better TV equipment at the venues. We're getting cameramen who know more about it and can follow the action better. We're getting better production quality. I mean, the Euro Hockey League's been pushing it forward. They have great coverage. They have a great camera set up. They have good cameramen. As the product gets better and better and better as a TV product, it's going to become more sellable. We're going to get more eyes on it, and it's going to grow. You yeah. only have to look at what's happened since 2012, where I went to quite a few quite a few of the games at the Olympics, and I remember looking around and seeing there were some spaces in the crowd to looking at the applications for the Pro League and the Women's World Cup. So it, it's been constantly growing since 2012. Obviously, the women's gold medal helped in 2016, and I just think by 2022, we're, we're going to have bigger groups of people wanting to go. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I, I I totally agree with you with regards to the capacity of five thousand. And I think it should actually be more. Uh, I'm not sure how they're going to uh, do the ticketing, whether it's going to be a ballot system like ballot system, should I say, uh, like it is now, or whether it's just going to be general sale tickets. But yeah, I think you know they uh, they could probably double that and still fill the seats. I just think they really need to look into that a little bit more. Uh, and and look at 
um, how the how the game's growing and whether that's going to be enough because it wasn't enough uh, really for like you're saying it isn't enough for the pro league it wasn't really enough for um, the um, women's world cup because there were people that were disappointed not getting tickets even the sellout tickets for the um, England women's games as well um, there was loads more people that wanted to basically be there in the games village in in the in the village that they created at the World Cup, there were people sat there just watching the World Cup because they couldn't get into the venue as well. So I think they really need to look into that. Um, and let's hope they do, they can double the size or even add another few thousand seats and see what, how that how that fares. Yeah. I have a problem with the ballot system, though. All right, go on. <laughs> I get why they do it. Yeah. But it also hurts clubs. Because I have spoken to several people with regard to Women's World Cup who wanted to come down as a club, sit together and watch the hockey. And because of the ballot system, it got to being too late so that they couldn't put everything together and get coaches on, get a group of tickets together and get all the members of the club free to come down. So I get why they do it, but there's got to be some system where they can incentivise clubs to come down as a group. Because I went to the the World Cup with my club. We got a coach from our ground. We all drove down, parked up. Everyone jumped on the coach at four o'clock in the morning or something like that to drive down to London to get parked up, to get into the stadium through the whole Olympic Park, which was a great experience apart from the food prices. <laughs> and get in and get sat and all sit together and you're all cheering and you're you've got club chants going on and it just helps drive the atmosphere and I think if there's one complaint that I would have of crowds at hockey games is sometimes there is this air of you you can't shout you can't sing you can't get a group chant going along I mean at, at the Women's World Cup I was there for one of the games where there was I'd say a group of about 10 lads mm. sat in one corner who were desperately trying to set a Mexican wave off and it must have taken them a good 10-15 minutes to get one going <laughs> and it, it escalated to the point where there was one sort of at every set of stairs along our group of the uh, the stand and sort of running along with the Mexican wave to keep people going. <laughs> and I think that is just because you're only getting tickets sold in small groups and so you don't get groups of friends sat together. You can't go as a group of, say, 20, 30 people. Hmm. So what, what do you think the uh, the answer is to that? Um, anyway, then it would would it be better if let's say for instance it's, it's England hockey or whatever, uh, for argument's sake, um, would you want them to actually say, look, you know, we've got a club section, you can you can uh, book groups of let's say maximum fifteen or twenty, um, and we only have a certain amount of those, and then have individual ballots as well. So have a ballot system for clubs and have a ballot system for individuals. Yeah, I, I would have a separate ballot system for clubs to put right. applications in and say, look, we've got 20 people who want to come or we've got 30 people who want to come. We want mm. to come on this day, you know, say the first Saturday in a tournament or the first Sunday because people don't need to take holiday. Mm. We can all come down together on a coach or however the, the club wants to get there. Yeah, We all want to be sat sort of in the same stand, preferably in a big group, uh, not sort of sat all along the front row so the person at one end can't speak to the person at the other. We want to be kind of in five rows of six or something like that and all sat together. And yeah. you can have lots of clubs put in applications and, you know, maybe if everyone's applying for the first Sunday of the tournament, just one of the stands gets converted into a club stand or 
they can dot them around in different places to create a more 3D atmosphere from around the entire stand or stadium. But I just think there are, there are clubs who will want to go down as a group and because they're trying to sort it out, not last minute, but later on, and it's then, oh, we've got two tickets here, we've got two tickets there, we're sat in this stand, we're in this stand. Oh, I'm going on Tuesday, I'm not going on Sunday. It, it just it spreads people out, it stops there being any atmosphere nut chanting because i mean you go to some other sporting events and you can't hear for people shouting and singing and things like that mm. oh, right yeah I, I understand that correct me if i'm wrong i thought i thought they had something like that where they offered tickets to clubs as well was it not enough tickets or or did they not do that i'm not sure I don't know. I don't think there was enough. I know for the Pro League, I personally reached out to England Hockey mm-hmm. and never got anything back if there was a way to apply for the club. Because, wow. again, all we wanted was we we wanted to go down for just one of the, the single-day events, preferably with the men and women. Mm. Um, so we weren't having to worry about hotels and stuff overnight. So we wanted to go down for just one day where we had both the men's and the women's teams playing, where we could be there all day, be a good day out for the, the kids because they can come and see some really high-level hockey mums and dads can you know sit together the kids can sit together the kids can have a laugh and a joke the mum and dad can have a a drink they don't have to worry about driving and everyone can get involved have a sing song you know chant cheer when there's a goal boo when there's a goal against whatever team you're supporting we don't tend to boo that much though do we not in hockey no it's all there's not much booing in hockey it's all super polite in hockey yeah yeah yeah. it's not it's not like football no (laughs) and i'm quite Um, glad it's not like football yeah, yeah, so am I. So am I. I think we, we, it's a, it's a very, very gentlemanly sport, isn't it? I think hockey, um, and that's why I like it so much as well. Really family orientated. Like I said, not much booing when, you know, the opposition sort of scores a goal or whatever, or you know, they might do a a goal celebration, and we just tend to let them have it and you know let them have that moment kind of thing. Yeah, well, hopefully, listen, let's see if they, you know, change things around, even if it's for the um, Commonwealth Games or whether uh, the Pro League will have a different sort of ticket acquiring system after this one. Who knows, they might keep it the same, they might change it slightly. Let's see what happens on that one. Recently, if I'm not mistaken, the FIH announced their FIH Series Finals, which uh, which is a continuation of the Hockey Open Series, isn't it? And they announced... There, 24 men's and women's teams. We'll keep an eye on that and, and maybe do an update in the next uh, podcast. What's been happening uh, in the world of the social media platforms out there? <laughs> any any buzz going out there? Or There is a lot of talk currently on social media with regards to who is responsible for providing face masks at penalty corners. Oh, yeah. I, I, I read so. That. So there was a, an incident recently where a club was claiming on insurance for uh, a facial injury sustained by one of their players. And the insurance company was questioning who should be responsible for providing individual player protection. Should it be the player themselves or should the club be looking to provide that? Where do you fall, Taff? Well, club or player? <laughs> Before I answer that question, I read that the actual insurance company lost their counter claim. And they had to make the payout. I can't remember exactly the the actual scenario of, of it. Where do I stand with this? <clears throat> I think if a club is is providing gear for the teams that they have in the club, then that's okay, right? But they provide it for every single team, so at least for face masks for each team. 
So if they've got 10 teams, then unfortunately, that's 10 times, you know, four face masks for every single team. Now, I think if the club provides it, it's up to the player. Now, if they get injured, it's on them. It's their, you know, it's their fault if they don't actually use it, if the club has provided it. If the club doesn't provide it, okay, and they don't provide it for any team, I don't think it can be we will provide it for the first team or the second team and we won't provide it for the third team or the fourth team or we'll just provide it for the juniors and we won't provide it for the for the for the women or you know do you see what i'm getting at if you're going to provide it for one team you're going to provide it for every single team or don't provide for anyone and make and have the onus on the players to actually get their own what are your thoughts on that one dare i ask <laughs> i largely agree with you okay i think the club should be responsible for providing some penalty corner masks now i think all junior teams should be taking penalty corner masks with them okay so I don't, I don't think that is ever going to be in question. If you've got them for the club, if there's a junior team playing away, so the under-10s, under-12s, under-14s, under-16 boys, girls, under-18s, under-21s, whatever your club wants to class as a youth team or a junior team, mm-hmm. they should have penalty corner masks. I think a club should provide penalty corner masks for all of their adult teams as well. Whether that's that they have one set that stays at home and all the home teams use that same set of penalty corner masks, And then they have a few sets that can be taken by away teams because, I mean, in theory, I know the leagues that I operate in try to, as best they can, have half teams at home, half teams away where they can for clubs. Mm. So so that's half the teams need to have a set of masks to go away with and one set of masks to stay. Mm. Now, when it comes down to bulk buying masks, I think what will happen is clubs will lean into buying not less protective masks, but they will look for deals, they will look for offers of uh, we're doing 20 masks for 500 pounds or whatever yeah. the, the the offer would be if you're buying that many mm. i think it there should also be some aspect of the players have to be responsible if they don't like the mask if they don't think they fit right if they don't think they're protective enough if you want to wear a mask because i know some players don't and i don't get that because i like how my face is set up i don't want that changing <laughs> so when i started playing at the back for my club and I was staying on a post on short corners the first thing I did is I went and bought a face mask I didn't look for what was cheapest I didn't look for what was um I didn't look for special offers or anything like that I looked for a mask that I thought would be protective so I play with an oboe face mask my reasoning being that oboe make goalkeeping kit and I know lots of goalkeepers who wear oboe goalkeeping kit and I've never known any of them complain about it so I bought an oboe face mask so I've got one of the original all black plastic face masks for the face off one now I've worn Mercian I've worn uh, TK I've worn Grays I've worn a Kookaburra mask I've worn countless other masks playing at different times where I've just grabbed the wrong mask out of the bag or someone's already got my mask on and they all are fantastic I've not had a problem when I've been hit on the mask with any of them but I just feel like if we're, we're saying clubs have got to provide four face masks per every team, that eventually it's going to get to the point where someone's going to go, oh, well, if I just make a cheap face mask, mm. I can sell 40 face masks to this club because I know they've got 10 teams. Yeah, It costs me 25 quid to make it. I can sell it for 30 to them. Mm. So I think it, it is on clubs to try and provide face masks. I think they should be offered. And if a player then doesn't wear them, it's on them. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what my what my thing was as well. If if the club provides it, then it's up to the player to either wear it or not wear it. The club has provided it, so if, if the accident happens, then it's on it's the player's fault really at the end of the day for not wearing the uh, face mask. I know a lot of players that 
uh, actually have their own, and they and they you know they would defend their role or they you know um, defend short corners um, on a regular basis. Then they buy they buy their own. I mean, I'm, I teach at school as well, and basically we provide face masks for our teams. Not that we have to, but I think it's just because they're junior teams, and we think that it should be uh, they should wear it, and, and and I make sure they do wear it on uh, penalty corners and things. But sometimes they don't, and unfortunately, we, there isn't a rule in 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 England where they have to wear one, so you can't really force them. But we no. basically sort of like say, look, you know, you have to wear one. It's for your own protection at the end of the day. I don't know. Maybe we should be a little bit like, uh, although I don't like <laughs> goggles that they wear in the in the USA. I just think they're kind of like dangerous anyway. But they're for all players and outfield players and things like that. Um, but I I think if for juniors for sure, we'll get them all to wear one because it's it's for their own good. For adults, if you provide it for them, if they don't wear it, it's you know it's. It's their fault. Yeah. Uh, as I say, I agree with you on that. Junior players, I think it should be mandatory. Mm-hmm. Adults, I think it should be provided. If they're not wearing it because they don't like the specific mask, it should be on them to get their own replacement because the club is providing an option. But that leads up nicely to what do you think should... Oh, okay. Right. What what I think should be required. Now, at the yep. moment, in the rules, it's basically the only requirement for outfield players at the moment is uh, minimum is the shin guard, isn't it? Um, but I think the gum shield should basically be a mandatory requirement as well. Uh, and again, with our juniors, I make sure that for most of them have got gum shields. Um, I make sure that they definitely have uh, shin guards with them. Face masks for um, penalty corners, definitely. I think it should be mandatory. Even at junior level now, there's like so many kids that can actually do really good drag flicks and get them in the air and you know get them placed and like i said before um the game is getting faster and faster and with people being very getting very good at uh, drag flicking and uh, and you know really good hits and things like that and and also with pc deflection and and the balls being hit as at a, a really pretty fast speed and it comes up in the air and you know you never know you can it could hit you in the face if you haven't got a face mask on it's going to do a lot more damage than just give you a little bit of a bruising. Yeah, so face masks, I think, mandatory. Gum shields have got to be mandatory now. And obviously shin guards are. I would say, for youth players especially, shin pads, gum shield, penalty corner mask, mandatory. I would also say a protective glove on the left hand. Okay. Now, at my club, we have the, the left hand glove is a recommended. We have made gum shields mandatory. We have made shin pads mandatory, which means... At the start of every junior coaching session, have you got your shin pads on? Have you got your gum shields in? No? Into the stand, you're not allowed to train without them. Oh, okay. Now, a lot of the time, you do have to chase up on them partway through. Where's your gum shield? Oh, it's in my pocket. Oh, it's in my sock. Yeah. Right, well, it's got to be in your mouth. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't like it. Well, you're going to have to get used to it because you're going to have to play with it. Oh, I would say that a left-hand glove should also be mandatory because we're asking players to get low and to get their left hand on the ground for shielding, for tackling, for deflections, things like that. Yeah. The left back of your left hand is always very exposed. Yeah, true, very true. Um, oh, I don't know about the left hand glove, but, but I mean, I suppose if we're protecting our kids and protecting our juniors, then yes, fair enough. Um, let's make them wear, um, you know, uh, left hand gloves or whatever. Um, for adults, 
again, it's going to have to be, you know, you provide your own or whatever. And, and if you don't wear, uh, don't wear a glove, then you don't wear a glove. Yeah, uh, I, I think the problem is with adults. You can say shin pads are mandatory, gum mm. shields are mandatory. Yeah, yeah. If they don't want to wear them, that's their their choice. Because I've known quite a few players who don't play with gum shields or don't play with shin pads. And, you know, that that's your decision. If you then get hit on the shin, you're not wearing shin pads. Yeah, but I thought... If you uh, get I, a tooth knocked out, you're not wearing a gum shield. Yeah, but like I said, I thought the, the actual shin guards were mandatory. I'm going to have to look that up, but I'm pretty sure they are. I, I mean, I agree. I do think they are mandatory, but it's very hard to tell for umpires if someone's wearing shin pads or if they've just got their socks pulled up. Mm. Well, I mean... You, you've got to assume that they are, yeah. because they should be, but if they're not... But I think if an umpire does see that a player doesn't have any shin guards on and they are mandatory, they just basically say, right, off you go. And if they don't have it with them, then unfortunately they don't come back on, on, on the pitch. I know it sounds harsh, but there you go. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I I have always worn shin pads. I've worn a gum shield since I was about 14 because at 14 I actually had a tooth knocked out. It's not a pleasant experience having it put back in. I can imagine. Um, the worst I, bit is not even a game, not even like club training. It was a after-school club that me and my friends had rallied to get back on. And it was a guy who I was, re- I'm still really good friends with. Just a completely innocuous incident, nowhere near the ball. Mm. As we were making a substitution, I got up off the bench to run on to join back in. As he came off, he put his stick over his shoulder, and it just caught me in the cheek, knocked oh, one no. of my teeth out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing incident, but it's that easy. Yeah, yeah, true. I'm actually in a medical journal somewhere because they'd never seen um, one of the, the side teeth be knocked out in its entirety. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. But that's it. That's, it, it was, it was a real nothing. That's what... So I got a fitted gum shield at that point, mm. and I've played with a gum shield ever since. Um, I've now got a Guardian Pro gum shield, who uh, I think they're fairly new... They support Hockey for Heroes. Me and my partner have got one. They do custom gum shields. They look fantastic. Can't recommend them enough. And they're really fair-priced as well. Cool. Well, yeah, I think we both agree with that, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what the uh, the listeners think about that. So if you've got any thoughts on this, guys, um, do send us an email at talkhockeyvideo at hotmail.com um, on anything on the podcast. But definitely about this one, if you've got any views, please do email us and uh, we'll get back to you and maybe even feature it in our next podcast. So I think it's nearly the end of the podcast, uh, Fraser. I'm just uh, thinking about, you know, what we will do for the next one. Um, Have we got any uh, more interviews lined up um, with anyone? Uh, I know we're going to talk about leagues next, next podcast, but we've got any interviews lined up. I know I've got one or two lined up, I think. I've got a couple of people lined up where I'm going to try and find some time to interview. Is that all? I think that's everything, yeah? Yeah, okay. Well, I think we've finally done it. We've finally done our first podcast. Um, and I think it's, it seems to be a bit of a long one, but um, I'm hoping that people will listen to it and, and you know hopefully uh, enjoy what we've actually discussed and talked about. We're going to uh, have one out every month, so keep listening out for or looking out for our social media posts and things to 
show you when our new podcast is going to be coming out. We'll have some more interesting discussions for you to listen to and maybe even take part. Like I said, send us a email on any any of the views that you might have on this uh, discussion that we've had at this podcast and we might even get you on who knows you might even be one of our featured guests i don't know about you fraser but i would like to interview people from the hockey family club coaches and club players and and their insight into hockey and how they started and and be a bit more hockey family-ish yeah before we go taff is there anything you've got coming up on the site that you want to promote um yeah i've got an interview with uh alan gromley um who who's basically the uh, inventor of walking hockey. He also introduced uh, back to hockey as well. I'll be interviewing him, I think, this week now to just give us an outline on on his walking hockey and and, and other projects that he's got lined up um, for the future. Because he's very, he's quite, a, he's quite an enthi- a hockey enthusiast, and he does a lot of, he thinks a lot about hockey, uh, always thinking about how to improve and how to get people involved. And I just love what he's doing. Introducing back to hockey and now introducing walking hockey and whatever else he's got lined up in the future. It's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be quite a good and interesting discussion with him. Thank you for listening to uh, the Talk Hockey Radio podcast um, episode one, the one with the introductions and the Jamie Dwyer interview. This episode of Talk Hockey Radio podcast has been sponsored by Kuka Hockey. You can find them on the web at www.kukahockey, that's one word, dot com.